0: Hi, this is John Lodge of the Moody Blues and you're listening to Follow Your Dream on the Robert Miller podcast. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream Podcast. I am Robert Miller. My guest today is Chris Amu of the band The Real Thing, Great Britain's most successful black group of all time. They were pioneers in soul, funk and dance music with so many hits in the 1970s, including You To Me Are Everything, the first number one hit in England by an all black group. Their predecessor band The Chance, which was founded by Chris's older brother Eddie, was discovered by the Beatles and managed by Brian Epstein. And Eddie later joined Chris in The Real Thing. The band continues to tour and was even the subject of a 2019 documentary shown on the BBC. They have a million monthly Spotify listeners. Can you believe that? And they have a new album coming out called A Brand New Day, which we're going to talk about. And in the middle of this episode as i do with all my musician guests we are going to do a song fest which i absolutely love we're going to play a bunch of songs that chris and i have picked out we're going to talk about them you're going to get the backstory and nobody else does this on podcast and my featured song in this episode and i always feature a song of mine in every episode And in this one, I have chosen the live version of a song that I wrote called 1972, and it's from the album Greetings from Serbia, when we played at a festival in Serbia in 2018. Why did I choose this song? Well, I chose it because I was trying to capture a 70s vibe in that song, and baby, that's the same era in which the real thing broke through. So... Chris Amu, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby.
1: Well, all I can say is the real thing follow their dream, and here we are today.
0: Well, that's what we're going to talk about. Tell me about your dream when you were young, what was your dream?
1: My dream and Dave's we formed the band, and our dream was to just sing on stage. We were watching all the black American bands at the time, and uh, my brother Eddie was in a vocal group at the time who also uh, were very much into the Black American sort of vocal bands like The Temptations. That on a day. All them bands. I just wanted to be like them. They were my inspiration. That's what I wanted to do from the age of 13 and basically that is all i was going to do and that was the dream that i followed
0: all right so when you when you looked at the groups like the temps okay they did all the choreography they did the great harmony what'd you like the best about them
1: i loved the choreography because in them days when you're young and you go into the local clubs the thing is you put the temps on and everybody's up doing the latest dances Uh and if you couldn't dance to them wasn't any good man wasn't any good you had to be able to get up there and groove along with the temps and the ojs the tops all of them but obviously when we started to have that dream about actually seriously wanting to be like them then we started singing along with the records and gradually we started to do harmonies over the records and that's when it started to to really, that was the embryo that we grew out of. In our front room, we'd put on the Temptations, we'd put on the OJs, we'd sing along, we'd try and learn the parts. Eddie had come in, who was a lot more experienced than we were, had been going a lot longer because he's a lot older. And he'd be able to show us our harmonies. So we'd be able to practice them every evening, every single evening. And in the end, I could do that. I could show the other guys What parts we should be singing, because I was learning bits of bass, bits of piano, and things like that. And we took it from there and gradually uh, over. I would reckon that we were practicing in our front room for about two years every night, you know. Only sometimes we wouldn't sing, sometimes we'd just meet, you know, put the records on, have a little sing, and then we'd be just chatting the night away and dreaming. Um, But on the whole, we took it pretty serious. And within two years, we were singing harmonies.
0: You know what's so interesting about this? You guys are listening to all the American groups and you're copying the American groups. And in the meantime, all the American guys like myself, we're listening to the British groups and we're copying all the British groups. Okay? It's like, you know, everybody wants to go across the pond.
1: Well, you know, the British groups were great for that, for the rock music. Right. You know, that's what they were great for. That's what they were great at. Whereas the Americans, for me, was great for the the Motown, the soul music. You couldn't get that in England. You couldn't get it in England, you know. We got it through the number one R manager, Tony Hall, right? Because he was around and had a lot of connections with the Beatles, Black Sabbath, he's got gold discs on his wall for. And he was the first white producer to actually produce a jazz uh, record, an album on the Blue Note label he managed a guy called Paul Buckmaster, who used to do all Miles Davis' arrangements. So he was very, very well clued in. Right? Got it. You know, these are the people that we were looking up to. You know? So, like I say to you, I don't mean to be derogatory to the sort of the rock music over here. It's just that we didn't listen to that music. We didn't listen to the Beatles and things, because I was too young to listen to the Beatles when they were, you know, I was only nine, eight, 10, you know? And, uh, you know, that was a time when you sort of started at the odd time, very, very rare, seeing The Temptations on television, on the Andy Williams show, or something (laughs) like that, if you were lucky to have a television. I mean, when I was very young, I didn't have one, couldn't afford one. Uh But as we started to get a little bit older and we started to see these bands, They're the bands we used to listen to, man. You know, they were the ones that we could see ourselves. We could see ourselves. We could look at ourselves and say, that's us. That's us in a couple of years' time.
0: You know, it's amazing. You know, you were focused on Detroit and the Motown sound. And, you know, Motown started and basically thrived in a little house called Hitsville, Okay. And they did all those recordings in the basement of that house. Yep, wasn't set up as a recording studio. It was a basement, and yet they had the greatest musicians and the greatest sounds.
1: Unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it's it's just unbelievable. You wouldn't get that now. I'm sorry, but you don't get that now. I know. It came out of a necessity. It's like they were like me, only they were American. They were young black kids looking at the platters. And all that had gone before them. That's what they wanted to be, you know. And basically, they had nothing else to do. They, that was their way out. That was their way of yep. actually being able to do something that they were in control of. I'm talking about in control of their talent. Now, they needed someone like a Betty Gordy to take that talent and put it onto the wild, onto the world stage. Like we needed Tony Hall, our manager, to take our Talent and hopefully hone it into something that was viable on a wide stage, you know, yep. rather than just the youth clubs.
0: So, when you started, you, you're doing, you know, funk and soul, you're doing kind of American music in England. Was there resistance or was there acceptance right from the beginning?
1: There was a resistance in that people used to love it. People used to love it, you know, um because, I mean, by this time, by the time the real thing came out, they were dancing properly in the clubs to like the old J's and things like that, you know. So it's like they were digging it, but they weren't accepting it from English groups. We, we were always considered in the early days, second best to the American bands. And in fact, you'd be amazed at how many people right to this day think that we're American. You'd be amazed. You'd be absolutely amazed at the amount of people in England who think we were American, and they'll tell you when you first came out. We all thought you were American.
0: Yeah. Well, you were. You were. Your heroes were the American bands. You probably had a sound that was similar, so I can understand how somebody might mistake it. But you guys were trailblazers in England. There's no question about it, right?
1: Yes. um We came up with, but it was because of our manager, you see, Tony. We owe it all to him. Honestly, we owe it all to that one guy because I'll tell you now, without him, we would not have made it in any way, shape or form. You had to have someone who had as much power and respect as the artists themselves. And over here, Tony Hall had that. Like all the DJs, like your Tony Blackburns and all them, who we were all absolute lovers of Black American music. They all respected Tony Hall because he's the one who brought it in. He was the one who was the pioneer to bring Otis Shredden and everybody into this country, so they all respected him. So if he said, "I've got this young black group from England, your own guys, the real thing, and they are great," I'm not saying that they'd just go along willy-nilly, but at least he'd listen. At least he'd listen. Well, well let's have a listen, Tony. I hear you. And they liked what they heard.
0: So what what happened to your relationship with him? Is it still ongoing or did it end a long time ago? Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Tony was with us till the day he died from when we were 18, 19 years old, 18, to the day he died three years ago. He was our manager. Never had another manager but him. And he was quite, un, he was unbelievable person. Number one, in them days, What most managers wanted, especially with, well, there weren't that many, but especially with bands like us, you had to have that commercial hit record. Now, Eddie was already writing songs, and by the time we met Tony Hall, I was also writing songs with Eddie, in my own way. Probably Eddie was looking and going, well, you know, but I was writing songs with Eddie. And Tony, immediately, the first thing he did was give Eddie and me a publishing contract. So you can imagine getting 500 quid into your hand in them days. 500 quid in them days was a lot of money. And give us a lot of encouragement to get writing songs, get writing more songs. That was the first thing he did. Then he made sure that all our records were written by us. All of them. Every single one.
0: So you would get the royalties.
1: Blow the royalties. It it was down to number one. He thought that they were good enough. Otherwise, he wouldn't have done it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he just did that. But he just. We wanted to be our own people. We, you know, we've gone past that stage now of copying the American bands. We've gone past that stage now. As raw as we were, we were performing our own songs as well as. Doing the covers. But on record, we were recording our own songs, and Tony encouraged this. And that then gave me and Eddie a lot of confidence to improve, improve, improve our writing. And that was one thing he instilled in us you must be original. You cannot just rely on other people writing your songs for you. Great if someone comes with a great song. Of course we will record it if it's a great commercial song, as we did with You To Me or everything. But learn to write your own material. And if it's good enough, I'll back you on it to the hilt. And that's what he did.
0: Good for you. Well, you know, look, there are so many stories in the music industry. Some of them are nice and some of them are terrible about how artists have been misled, ripped off, etc. cetera. You were one of the lucky ones. You had a guy that you trusted.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't know what, how it happened, but it's the luckiest day of my life when I met that guy. Good you know, one of the songs on the album, which we'll talk about later, God Help the Child, right? But we'll talk about that later, and it brings the whole significance of somebody like Tony Hall. It explains here you what it is, how important it is to have.
0: hi everybody this is robert miller you're listening to my new single the fall of winter a collaboration with legendary rocker jim Peterick from the ides of march and formerly with survivor and featuring renowned guitarist elliot randall of steely dan fame and keyboard player tony Carey. the reviewers have called the fall of winter a triumph and flexes real rock muscles the track is available now for streaming on spotify apple and all the other streaming platforms and also for download at the pgsstore.com and you must check out the lyric video of the song on youtube the show notes have all the links thanks for listening and keep on rocking But let's go to the Songfest now, because we got a bunch of songs to go through. And I want you to take us through this whole transition that you had. So your big, big hit, the first one was, you mentioned it a moment ago, You to Me Are Everything. Tell us about that.
1: You To Me On Everything came up in a funny way. We'd had a series of singles. We'd worked with a guy called David Essex over here. We'd been to America with him. We'd worked at Roxy in LA. We'd worked the Bottom Line. We'd worked all the main clubs in that throughout the country, done TVs. So we, we were building up a following before we had a hit. And Tony was looking, because he, he was predominantly a publisher, for that song because we weren't writing commercial songs me and Eddie we were writing things like children the ghetto and things they weren't commercial and we're always on the lookout for a commercial song so Tony contacted these two writers terrific pop writers at the time who we were writing a lot of hits for people I won't mention them because there's no need but they were writing the hits for a few people at the time and they came to see us at a place called Gulliver's in London and hopefully they were going to Give us one of their songs and produce it. The phone Tony the next day says, we're not interested because we don't think that they've got a lead singer. Now, I was pretty miffed by that because by this time, I was doing a lot of adverts. for um, you know, Jeff Wayne, who did War of the Worlds? Who's mm-hmm. American, right? Yeah. And big one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And he was doing all the jingles. And so I was doing all these jingles for Cadbury's Dairy Milk, Wrigley's Spermink Gum. Uh, Midland Bank I was doing all I was the voice on all them and they're saying that we didn't have a lead singer I thought well that's strange you know that he should think that but we thought okay we move on a couple of days later a guy walks into the office with you know a few songs and one of the songs was "You to Me Are everything I just happened to be in the office and me and Tony looked at each other and we thought that is a really strong song reminded us of Johnny Bristol Hang on in there, baby. You know, that, that sort of, that groove um, that, that, that they have to, and we thought, yeah, yeah, you know, I could see that. I could see that on the dance floor. So we had a time, so He seal delivered. And there's one more funny story about that. The day it was released, we were working with David Essex at Earl's Court in England, which is a huge arena, 20,000 people. And there was a radio show on Radio 1, which was the main radio station called, Uh, It was Radio One, and there was a program called the Roscoe's Roundtable. And what that's about, they'll play about four to five songs, and they have someone famous on to comment on whether they thought the song was going to be a hit or a miss and talk about the song. The guy they had on was a guy called from Kent from 10cc, no, Graham Goulman from 10cc. Uh And he says he didn't think it was going to be a hit. He says he thought that the, um, the singer had a frog in his throat at the end. He didn't think it was going to be a hit. Three weeks later, it was number one.
0: (laughs) I bet you they didn't have him back on that show again. (laughs) And
1: we've worked with him many a time since, and we have a laugh about it, you know. I can imagine. That's just the way it is.
0: All right, let's move on to the second one. This was another big hit of yours. It was probably the follow-up, I guess, called Can't Get By Without You.
1: We'd go on forever, lovers hand in hand. Can't you understand? That was great. I mean, I actually preferred that one. And once again, Ken sent us a few songs because by then, you know, he'd written You To Me, which was number one. You've got to see what else he's got to offer. And he played the song, Can't Get By. And we thought, what the hell, that's a nice one. That's a lovely one. So we were going to do that. We did three songs on that session and that's the song we picked. Um, And the only one that kept us off from number one on that was Abbott. (laughs) <laughs> yeah they kept us from the number one spot on that
0: it's kind of funny because it's it's like a completely different kind of band and a completely different kind of sound but hey yeah you got to number two at least right that's pretty cool mm-hmm. all right so let's go to the next song now this is children of the ghetto you did this back in the day but now you've done it again live and we're playing the live version So tell us about the whole thing there.
1: Children of the Ghetto has become a real cultive for the real thing because it's it's the song that I'm most proud of, and, 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 and Eddie was, and the group are, from our whole collection, in our whole career. This is our song. If ever you said to me, what's your best song that you've written? It's this one. What's the one you enjoy singing most? It's this one. Tell us why. Well, the thing about, number one, it's a great song, I think. Number two, it means something to us because it's a song that was written about, it was our answer to Marvin Gaye and Curtis who grew up in a ghetto. This is us. It tells our story where we grew up, which was Toxteth in Liverpool, which was the ghetto in Liverpool. And that's what Children of the Ghetto was about. But what we're most proud of was a few things. The people who have covered the song, number one, it was in the Spike Lee movie. It was featured in the Spike Lee movie, Clockers. So we're really proud of that. Recorded by Mary J. Blythe. She does a fantastic version of it. It was recorded by Philip Bailey, produced by Phil Collins, who also did a fantastic version of it. It's been recorded by Courtney Pine, who's a fantastic jazz saxophonist in England. And it's been covered, but I can't tell you the amount of hip-hop, young hip-hop artists who have covered that song. And that's why it's so special to the real thing. But it was featured on one of our main albums, which is 4 From 8. And the way me and Eddie were looking at it at the time was, all these real people who we respect are all covered in the song, yet we've never been allowed to do it as a single, ever. And I just thought that because of technology now and because we've got no restraints from a record company, we are going to have this as a single for the first time with real thing on the label, a single for real thing. And we decided to do it live because I can't get the emotion of the song by standing in a studio and singing it or singing it at home. I get the emotion from it when I'm in front of an audience and that's what I want to come over when people listen to the song. You can only do that live and I feel it's different anyway to do something live because you can hear canon versions all day on the radio for your heart's content. Very rare do you hear a live performance. You heard a lot more back in the day.
0: I agree with you.
1: And I got every single live One of my favorite bands did a live album. I had it and I enjoyed that more than any of the canned versions.
0: Well, you're right. So I'm old school. Playing it live before an audience, getting the audience reaction through the performers makes a whole bit of difference. No question about it. And this is a very emotional song. I mean, this is, as you said, this is your story. This is your point of view. This is you telling the world what it was like for you to grow up and, and, you know, where you came from. So that emotion needs to be captured in a song, and that's what you did. And I agree with you that the live version does that.
1: Well, that's great. And thank you, because that's what it was intended to do. And it's probably our proudest moment on the album. I love all the songs on the album. My actual favourites are the Ghetto Quadrilogy on the album, for obvious reasons, and this is the standout from the Ghetto Quadrilogy on the album. Okay. The showpiece.
0: The top of the top. Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Let's go on to the next one. You mentioned this one earlier in our discussion. God help the child. another one that's emotional and you can see it comes from your background so talk to us about this
1: the idea was when we uh, i wrote the album was I love ballads, and I absolutely love soul ballads. Always have done. My favourite Luther Vandross tracks, all ballads, more so than the uptempo ones. But I also wanted to have a serious part on the album that people could sit down and understand the real thing. And a lot of people saw our film, Everything, and a lot of the younger generation especially who... Knew the song, New to Me, and things, but they never, they didn't know the depth of the real thing, what the real thing was about, or anything else until they saw that film. So I decided when I was putting the album together that we were going to have a quadrilogy of songs that was going to take people on a journey as to what it was like for a young black person growing up in a ghetto. So the standout one, Children of the Ghetto, which is self-explanatory. The next track was a track called Daddy Dear. Okay, do you want me to explain the quadrilogy, or do you just want me to uh, to explain God Help the Child?
0: I'll leave it to you.
1: Okay, so Daddy Dear is a song that we wrote a long, long time ago. What Daddy Dear is about is. A young black kid's first experience when he goes to school. And it's his first experience of getting called names. And he doesn't really understand what these names are that they're calling him. So he goes home to his parents and he says, what are these funny names that they're calling me? Is there something wrong with me? And his parents have to find a way to explain to him. No, to, uh, uh, to them, Here, her. There's nothing wrong with you. It's just the way of the world. And the world can be cruel sometimes. And that is something that I know because I had to do it. And I know for a fact that every single black kid at some point has faced the same thing. So that's Daddy that Dear.
0: Let me ask you this, though. Your experience growing up, obviously, it's infused in all of your music. You're talking about that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you tried to capture it and you're serious and it means something to you. Let's fast forward to today. Is the experience in, in England of a Black kid growing up today, is it different or not from your experience?
1: From my experience, I couldn't tell you because I'm not a young Black kid growing up today. Yeah,
0: but you're in touch with the community.
1: From what I know, it's exactly the same. It's exactly the same, mm. but the difference is there's a hell of a lot more role models and things that these young black kids can look at now to know that they're not Because when I went to school, I, I was lucky if, I was, if there was only three black people in the school. It's different now. It's, it's multicultural now. It certainly wasn't, I can tell you now, when I went to school, I can could count the amount of black people in that school right and don't get me wrong i made a lot of friends in the school but these are things that you go through and they will still go through them now because you will still hear the names getting called joining football matches
0: Uh so the kids today are they familiar with the real thing is it something that's ingrained in the system or do they have to search it out search what out well in other words it it if you ask, you know, some of the young black kids today about the great groups, are they going to know about the real thing? Or is it the kind of thing that you have to kind of reintroduce your music to a whole new generation because they can't find it in the same way that they can find the big hits, you know, that they hear on the radio?
1: Yeah, that's, but that's natural. That's natural. I mean, the film, our film, everything, obviously brought our group to a lot of young people who otherwise probably know the song but aren't ultra into the song, but they know it because they hear it all the time. Um it's still being played. It's still being played, but they're listening to something different. But when, hopefully, they listen to this album, they're listening to something which will bring us closer to what they're listening to, because with the soul ballads, with the message, the messages that are coming out, in the quadrant, like a lot of the young people were all amazed about our four from eight album, Children of the Ghetto, which straight after the film came straight into the um the RB chart in England at number three. Now that's young people who weren't aware of children of the ghetto and things. All of a sudden they've seen it on television, they go, Oh, that hey, yeah, I like that, you know, because they're more ready for that now. Interesting. That is more suiting and in vogue with what they're listening to now with all the rap things and everything. It's just more in vogue with what they're listening to. Whereas back in the day, it was a lot more you to me and things like that, that the young ones were listening to. You know, they weren't really listening over here to the really heavy side of Curtis Mayfield, The Last Poets and all them type of bands. They weren't really listening to that.
0: The more commercial stuff.
1: The more commercial stuff, you know
0: okay talk to us about hang on never let go
1: Hang On, Never Let Go is one of those soul ballads that I love singing. And it's a feel-good song. You can put it on and it doesn't doesn't matter what generation you're from. You can listen to it. And, you know, if you're driving along in the sunshine, just make you feel good. Some songs, some records, that's what they're meant to do. And we all need them. We don't all need Children of the Ghetto.
0: You and your band are great musical ambassadors. I love the message that you guys are putting forward. You're not you're making sure that people remember where you came from and what your upbringing was like, and it's infused in the music, and that's important. We have been speaking to Chris Amu of The Real Thing. Chris, I want to thank you so much for being on the podcast. This has been an awesome experience to listen to you, to for me to learn what it was like for you to grow up in England and go through what you did and uh, how you've infused it all into your music. So I want to congratulate you on all of that and wish you the best of luck going forward with everything, with the real thing. Thank you. All right, and now we're going to listen again to the song that started off our episode of the podcast. This is my song called 1972. It's the live version, and I agree with Chris, the live versions are always better. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream Podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at Robert at And you can hear more from his band at ProjectGrandSlam.com and at the PGSStore.com.